0: Uh, during Lent, we've been tracking this theme in the Old Testament readings that have to do with covenants and promises that God has made to God's people. Excuse me. And um, there are five. uh, When scholars and uh, people who study the Bible and Priests and rabbis look at the whole arc of the story of God's relationship with God's people. There are five main covenants or promises that shape the whole relationship and the whole history and the whole narrative arc of that story and that relationship. And uh, we heard four of them uh, over the last four weeks, plus today would be the fifth. The first one, you might recall, is the covenant with Noah. In which God said that he would never again destroy uh, all life on earth and the the earth itself, that uh, he would, in essence, kind of accept that creation is in some ways corrupt, especially human beings, and uh, that that would never be a cause for destroying the earth again. So that was the covenant with Noah. The second covenant was the covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And this is a covenant in which God said to Abraham and Sarah, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you prosperous, and I will make you uh, plentiful. You will be the uh, progenitors of many, many kingdoms and peoples and uh, all kinds of good stuff like that, and you'll be given this land that I I am going to show you. And I am going to basically work my purposes of salvation through you. You will be, I will be your God, you will be my people. And uh, that covenant was fulfilled in a particular kind of way, which is it seemed completely impossible and that Abraham and Sarah's imaginations could not comprehend how a 90 year old and a 99 year old could be the uh, progenitors of a great nation, uh, which caused them to laugh and which caused their first child to be named Isaac, which means laughter, you might remember that. So sometimes God, God's covenants seem so outrageous to us that we don't feel like we can do anything but simply laugh about them. The third covenant that we heard about was the 10 Commandments, very famous of course, uh, which basically broke down to loving God and loving neighbor. Um, Those Ten Commandments, of course, were given at Mount Sinai uh, a couple of months into their journey of liberation from Egypt. And uh, those covenants, that covenant was somewhat conditional. In other words, it came along with a set of blessings and curses uh, dependent on whether or not people followed them. Uh, On Mount Nebo, Moses, just before the uh, Israelites entered the Promised Land, said, I am setting before you today the way of life and the way of death. So there's a path of righteousness and there's a path of unrighteousness. One leads to life in God and one leads to death. One leads to a closer relationship with God. One leads farther away. Um, So those are the 10 commandments. And as we mentioned before, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. Uh, There are 10 uh, in the 10 commandments, of course. And then there are two that relate to, uh, loving God and loving God, uh, loving neighbor, which are summarized in those 10 commandments. Um, the next commandment that we hear from is about the snake on a stick, which isn't quite a, um, can't really call it a covenant. Can't really call it a commandment. What it is, is God providing a way for people to receive healing from the impacts of their sinfulness. When people stray and they go away from God's ways, uh, there's, there's a natural consequence, as parents might say about their kids. There's a natural consequence. But God also provides a means of healing for that as well. That particular episode, which we heard about last week, again, doesn't quite fall into the covenant bucket. The fourth, command, the fourth um, covenant that we did not hear about because we were listening to the story about the snake instead is a covenant with David, King David. And that covenant from God to David said, the, uh, the line of David, the house of David will always be on the throne of Israel. This is why it's so important in the New Testament to hear about uh, Jesus's lineage and how it connects Jesus to to David. So that brings us to the fifth covenant, uh, which is uh, today's covenant. It's from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. It is called the New Covenant. And Jeremiah is preaching to the exiles who are getting ready to make their way back into Israel. This is a message of hope and comfort from Jeremiah, after all the devastation that these people have been through. And he says, uh, I'm going to give you a new covenant He's speaking on behalf of God, God will give a new covenant, but it's not actually going to be a new promise. The covenant here is very simple. It goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, I will be your God, you will be my people. So there aren't 613, there aren't 10, there aren't two. It's just this one promise. Uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. What he is promising here is a new kind of covenant. They're not written on tablets. They're, it's not uh, sealed with a special ritual sacrifice. It, uh, this covenant in uh, the way it's going to be manifested is that it will be uh, placed within us and it will be written on our hearts. So placed within us and written on our hearts. And no longer will we say to each other, know the Lord, because we'll all know the Lord. And no longer will we teach one another because we'll already have this knowledge of the Lord and of the Lord's covenants. It's really almost kind of shocking, but it's especially, um, it's especially inspiring to think that this actually is our destiny, according to the prophet Jeremiah, that our destiny is that God's law, God's word is going to be placed within us and written on our hearts. So this isn't like, here's the book of rules or uh, here's the book of laws, Um, It's not like uh, we're going to make this ritual uh, sacrifice to seal this promise with each other. But we're just going to be living this life in God, knowing God's word, uh, manifesting, living out God's love in the world, because it'll be within us instead of imposed upon us from outside. It reminds me of, you know, our journey as we age, um, for example, Richard Rohr talks about the first spirituality of the first half of life is, living how, uh, is learning how to live in institutions. How do you be a good student? How do you be a good citizen? How do you be a good parent? And you're sort of learning these things so you can function within these institutions within society and get the rewards from being good at all these things. But there's a point that comes in our life where we need to be independent of those things. We need to go on our own journey and not just within these institutions. And to me, this is where Jeremiah's new covenant comes into play. Again, we're not receiving these things from the outside anymore. These are things that become written on our hearts, so that we are out in the world, we are looking within into what's in our own heart instead of to the rules that are that are given to us. That's what Rohr calls the spirituality of the second half of life. So these covenants uh, that all have come to us through uh, the Bible, through tradition, um, they show us lots of things about God. God manifests uh, in these covenants in some in some very profound and very important kinds of ways. Uh, our lives are often shaped by the promises that we make and that we keep. Um, our, you know, marriage vows. It could be other vows that we might that we might keep, our baptismal vows. They all kind of shape and guide who we are uh, and how we move through the world. Similarly, these commitments from God also shape our relationship with God. We have these, again, these five covenants that have uh, really guided this whole journey that we've been on with with God. Um, God continues to grow and change, which is interesting because if you think about God as being this monolith that never changes, well, God evolves over time, depending on the circumstances, God's relationship with God's people grows and changes. So, for example, you know, God creates the earth in Genesis, and then he destroys it with the flood. And then he creates this first covenant with Noah that says, I'm never doing that. I'm never doing that again. And then God decides, um, I'm going to work out my purposes on earth with a people, and there will be a people who will be my people, and I will be their God. So he picks Abraham and Sarah to go on this journey together. Um, He liberates them from Egypt because he remembers them. He remembers their suffering as the, as the scripture says, and he leads them out of slavery into liberation. And he gives them this set of commandments that basically says, this is how my people act. My people will be distinguished by this behavior this way of organizing ourselves, this way of worshiping, uh, to make them distinctive. It's interesting to me that Jeremiah gets so intimate. uh, Well, excuse me, God does in Jeremiah. God says, uh, I was their husband. They broke my commandments. Literally, they smashed the tablets. They broke my commandments, even though I was their husband. And even though I held them by the hand as I led them out of Egypt, held them by the hand, like the way a parent leads a little child, I was their husband. And again, that's the nature of this covenant. It's really as much as anything is a covenant of marriage between God and God's people. So thinking about this idea of um, Uh, Jeremiah's new covenant. What does it mean to have God's law, God's word, God's love to be, to embody that, to manifest that, to incarnate that, uh, not to be, you know, don't have a rule book, but just living it because it's in our heart. Jesus, of course, is the epitome, the paradigm for a human being having God's law written on God, written on his heart. And uh, like us, we are like us. Jesus is a mixture of divine and uh, human natures. Jesus is both of those things. Uh, But as the incarnation of God himself, he's really, (laughs) honestly, he's just sort of made out of God's word. He is God's word incarnate. That's what he is. That's who he is. So he gives us a perfect example of what that looks like and what it means to live that way, to have that law embodied within us. And in the gospel lesson today, we can see that it's uh, pretty hard. It's not that easy to live as the embodiment of God's word, God's love in the world today. In the lesson, we are six days away from Passover, uh, the Passover at which Jesus will be arrested, tried, tortured, killed, and then uh, be raised again and ascended. So these are, uh, this interaction with the Greeks, and there's a few extra verses tacked on there that we didn't hear today. These are the last words of Jesus's public ministry. So when these Greeks come they're gentiles who are interested in Jesus because they've heard amazing things about him. He's amazing uh he's an amazing teacher, he has had an amazing ability to to heal people uh physically and spiritually in many other ways and they want to see Jesus. And um There's this interesting little dance that you see in John all the time. They go to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, the two of them go to Jesus. Uh, And Jesus doesn't even, (laughs) he doesn't even talk to the Greeks. He just starts, just starts talking. And what he wants to say is now is the time for me to be glorified. What does that mean? And then he says, now is the time for me to lift, be lifted up. So I will draw all people to myself. So he's kind of speaking about the Greeks, like all people are gonna come to see me, but he's talking, he keeps talking about his death in some way. Like, you know, this idea of uh, the people that are gonna hang on to their life are gonna lose it. People that are willing to lose it are gonna save it. Um, he says, uh, shall I be saved from this hour? and um and then he says no this is the hour why i came here now um and that's when the god's voice is heard this thunderous voice i have glorified my name and i'll glorify it again um and then jesus talks about how his death is a kind of judgment when he dies that will be a judgment upon this world upon the powers that be that's how jesus's death Uh, that's what it will do that will be the function of it so these people come to see this amazing spiritual man and they're like i you know you can imagine that intuitively if not explicitly this is a guy that seems to have god's law god's word god's love written on his heart he seems to like live it he seems to be it Uh, let's go meet him and this person it turns out is pretty troubled he says right off the top my soul is troubled It's time for me to be glorified. It's time for me to die uh, the way a grain of wheat dies and becomes numerous and, and fruitful. It's time for me to die because my death is necessary for the judgment of this world. And he always sneaks this in here, this implication that you need to pick up your cross and follow me. My destiny is your destiny. This is the kind of death I'm gonna die. And it's the same kind of death. You're going to die, again, spiritually, if not literally. And that's what it means to have this, um, the law, the word, God's love written on our hearts. It's not easy. It's not about lifting ourselves up and um, spiritual bypass, as they call it, going over or around this world and this life. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's about going through this life because that's what God intended through these, uh, through all of these covenants and all of these promises to bind himself to his own people. Lent is a really good time to think about, to contemplate what it means to, have, to live in a covenantal relationship with God, to contemplate God's promises to us, um, to you in your own life, to think about promises and covenants that you've made to others, how that's shaped your life, and to think about how that same dynamic is at play in God's uh, relationship with us. It's a great time to be thinking about Again, this destiny that we have, that God's law, God's word, and God's love will be written on our hearts and what that will look like. Amen.